We okay, everyone. We apologize. We just had a, a technical glitch, uh, but we're back to continue with Jay and Robert. Uh, Jay, why don't you uh, start us off again? Yeah, That's Robert. Thank off. you. Uh, sorry about the the glitch, but you know, you were telling us the story about uh, talking with Callahan, and you were you were in the midst of telling us the story about uh, the, the the potentially the virus having come out of labs in Wuhan, and uh, my, and uh, as a result of intentional. Uh, intentional lab work. I had a, an amazing series in retrospect of calls with Michael Callahan in January, February, and March of 2020, uh, including in real time as he was managing the Diamond Princess outbreak and uh, designing and deploying the tent hospitals in New York City and uh, uh, being engaged in setting uh, policy for ventilator use in the United States and uh, um, nursing home policy and uh, working closely with the White House at the time. And uh, two of the ones that are, are kind of amazing in retrospect, one was uh, when I told him that I had assembled this team to use computational uh, methods, high throughput methods to uh, discover repurposed drugs. And he had said that they'd already had all of the um, big pharma teams through the White House and discussed with them. And there was no way that we would be able to come up with anything different other than, you know, or better than what pharma was going to be able to come up with. Uh, and then the other one was uh, when I uh, was uh, asking him about the information that was really starting to circulate about the potential that the virus was engineered in the laboratory in Wuhan rather than being a uh, emergent phenomena from uh, the seafood market, which is how the original isolate that I built my uh, x-ray crystallography models off of was originally uploaded to NIH, I think on the 11th of January. Um, as the Wuhan seafood market virus. <clears throat> and Callahan had told me that, he, quote, his people had been all over the sequence of the virus and there was absolutely no indication that it was engineered, which I now know in retrospect was a lie. And who his people were, quote, unquote, I can only infer. Michael is is absolutely CIA. Uh, I've met his case officer, um, who is a was a senior academic at Harvard. Michael has an appointment at Harvard. Um, uh, and uh, Michael, a case can be made. I, Michael is one of the government's top experts in gain of function research. Uh, and um, uh, Whitney Webb has documented that history far beyond what I knew about him in an article that she's published uh, called uh, DARPA's Man in Wuhan uh, that can be um, readily found on the, on the web. So uh, I, you know, and, and Michael was not the only person in the intelligence community that I was interacting with. There were others that were um, from different camps uh, that had been involved in a development of the core uh, CIA uh biodefense, uh, infectious disease, uh, data capture systems, um, 
that go back to the 70s from when they were building them. Uh, It's important to understand that the the enterprise. You would already, in your history, you had already been involved with some of these activities, not not necessarily the gain-of-functional work for this virus, but like the, the defense industry's involvement with biodefense. That was something that was not that was familiar to you. That wasn't something that, that was new to you in March of 2020. No, I, I entered the biodefense world of necessity uh, after I destroyed my career in gene therapy. And a, uh, um, a senior guy in the Department of Business and Economic Development at the state of Maryland had connected me to a new company that had just won a major uh, government contract up in Frederick, Maryland for uh, managing all uh, government-related biodefense products uh, for the military called Dyneport Vaccine Company. And uh, this was this is before the pandemic. So you had you had a history here. This, this is this is uh, right after uh, the anthrax attacks. Right. So like two thousand. I mean, that was that two thousand and one. Right. Um, Correct. So so now you you have this um, you have this history, and now you you're hearing from the uh, from some folks your connections inside the, uh, inside this biodefense industry that look the, 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 essentially this is not a simply uh, a, a public health disaster. It's it's potentially something that they're thinking of as a biodefense bio disaster. Um, and, they're, and now they've employed techniques like misinformation, disinformation to suppress what people, what scientists are talking about it. And censorship. Um, and censorship, as evidence, right. As evidenced by the well, uh, we've Amazon. We've subject to that, right? Um, so, so you're, so what's, what is your, what's your response to this? Like, how, how did you think, how did you, I mean, like at this point in the pandemic, I was I was still an academic. I mean, I still I guess I still am an academic. Um, but I was focused on on doing science. I thought I can run. I, I didn't know how widespread the disease was, but it looked to me like the that in March of 2020 that it was it was likely very widespread. I've been following the data out of out of Wuhan, obviously the Diamond Princess. I've been following the data um, uh, that, that was as, as best I could. It was published, you know, in in, in Med Archive. I'd seen the age stratification. I'd seen the, the data about how, uh, you know, these, the Chinese restaurant study of how the disease spread from one end to the other. It was very clearly aerosolized. Uh, and so I was like, I, I had a hypothesis that was pretty widespread. So I figured I'd just do normal science. I would run a study of how widespread the disease was in the population in Santa Clara County and, the, and then later LA County. Um, and I was met with a furious backlash for what I just thought was a normal study. Like, wouldn't wouldn't we want to know how widespread the disease already was before we, uh, or, or as we were engaging in these absolute extraordinary measures to try to control the spread of it? Um, it seemed to me that the entire uh, uh, apparatus of science was focused on not knowing the answer to that question. Like, for instance, why didn't the CIA, the uh, the the, uh, the CDC not already run that study? I mean, isn't that the an obvious question? Yeah, there, there. I agree. There's a lot of of uh, data points here that are really paradoxes. Um, they make no sense from a public health standpoint, and this is the best argument in favor of those who uh, advance the uh, thesis that there were other agendas at play here. Uh, and uh, pre-planning. And in retrospect, thinking through various small comments that Callahan had made to me during these early months, um, 
I, I conclude that uh, there were forces at work here that I still don't understand. Uh, and um, I'm still uh, mystified by the um, complete, almost complete and total disconnect between uh, well-established public health and infectious disease norms for outbreaks and uh, the actual on-the-ground uh, management that was performed uh, at WHO and uh, U.S. government levels. It, it makes no sense I mean, again and, and again and again. I mean, there's this like conflation of this is a bioterrorist event is what you're, what you're describing in, in terms of the sources that you were talking with. Um, and, uh, and then the idea that this is a, this is an infectious disease outbreak, uh, that we have to manage with standard public health principles. Like normally you would identify who is at high risk. Of course you try to find, just like as you did, try to identify, uh, red, readily repurposed drugs that are potentially effective. I, I, you also would want to try to develop a vaccine as rapidly as you can and protect vulnerable people without disrupting society. Uh, as, as much as possible, not spreading panic and fear. And yet, at this time, every single one of those principles gets overturned, except for, uh, except for, let's develop a vaccine quickly. Yeah, and it's and and not just develop a vaccine quickly, but fast track a particular technology. One of the weird. So, in in having been in the world that I used to be in. Uh, I would hear a lot of chatter. Uh, you, we could call it the rumor mill, DC rumor mill or whatever. And among those was that Rick Bright, who I've known for years, a former head of uh, BARDA, which is the large contracting arm of HHS that gives out the billion dollar uh, grants, hundreds of millions to billions, uh, to support the development of these various agents and their uh, manufacturing and deployment and stockpiling. Rick Bright, who was head of that organization at the time, uh, the, made a, a decision to fund uh, Janssen or J&J to advance the adenovirus vector technology for vaccine purposes. Um, and Rick, uh, Rick self uh, identifies as a vaccinologist, although his track record in that is is marginal. He's more of a bureaucrat manager. So just, just bring us back to the conversation to that earlier. This is this this is a, a like a like that same technology that led to the death of that Gelsing, Jesse Gelsinger. Gelsinger. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, and in fact, the technology goes back to uh, the senior postdoc in the laboratory that I was at at the Salk Institute, Dinko Valerio who, when he left the Salk, where he was working on adenovirus vectors while I was working on RNA, um, created a company called Crucell that was focused on gene therapy. And then as I was starting to advocate a genetic vaccination as a strategy um, in the community, he came to me once and said that he he had been convinced by what I had said and he was going to pivot Crucell from being a gene therapy company to being a vaccine company. And that's that took off then and eventually was sold to J&J. So that was the lineage of that tech. Um, so yeah, so Rick, uh, at that point in time, 
adenovirus vectors were considered the leading tech for uh, gene therapy-based vaccination. And uh, um, Rick decided to uh, place a very large bet, hundreds of millions, on J&J to develop the vaccine. Um, And you'll recall AstraZeneca in the UK was doing something similar, I think, with Oxford. And uh, um, the way the story goes is that Rick's big sin was that he did not get the approval of Anthony Fauci to do this. And that was the beginning of the rift that eventually led uh, Rick Bright to um, be removed from BARDA, uh, engaged in his whistleblower lawsuit um, against Michael Callahan and others, and uh, leave the government and join the Rockefeller Institute. Um, but the, the point is that even back then, very early, uh, Tony Fauci, if this rumor has merit, uh, only wanted to see the RNA technology advanced, not this uh, adenovirus vector technology, which had previously um, been developed for other vaccines and actually achieved licensure uh, for an Ebola vaccine candidate. Um and so there, uh, there was a there was a really interesting reanalysis of the trials the, the, for the J and J and AstraZeneca vaccine by a, an epidemiologist in Denmark named Christine Stable Ben, and she found that uh, that the the while the mRNA vaccines showed no statistically significant benefit in those large trials against death from. Uh, all-cause mortality. Yeah. <laughs> An important endpoint. Yeah, and one would think. Uh, <laughs> in, in, in fact, the J&J did. The, I'm sorry, the J&J and the AstraZeneca together, the adenovector virus vaccines, did show some some uh, some benefit against all-cause mortality. Um, so it's it's kind of interesting. I mean, it's... You know, that's you know, fascinating, Jay, because if you pick that apart, um, if you look at all-cause uh, mortality as an endpoint with the RNA vaccines, um that is confounded by the apparent uh, contribution of the toxicity, the RNA tech to all cause mortality because of the cardiac event uh, signal. Okay. So, so it, um, could, it could have been that both had efficacy, but that in the statistical analysis, the uh, marginal efficacy associated with the mRNA uh, was um, confounded by the undetected uh, excess mortality due to the toxicity of the product. Robert, as you know, uh, this is, this is, these are very complicated, fraught questions. Like we're, we're about to recommend uh, a technology to be used at scale for billions of people. And we need a, yeah. we need a real solid answer, right? To know, to know this, what are we doing the right thing? How did, again, if the rumors are right, how did Tony Fauci decide that, that, that this one technology was the right right thing, even before any of the data were in? Like, well, how would you make a single bet? Like, I th- you know, a lot of other, a lot of co- other countries use different technologies. Um, even in this country, there was another vaccine um, technology, these protein subunit vaccines, which are more traditional, uh, that, that seemed to get, you know, there was a, there was, it was sort of slow walked through, whereas the mRNA technology and then the J&J. Oh, you're, were, you're talking about Novavax. Novavax, yeah, but you know other other yeah, countries. Yeah, and there was protein. there was also an even more traditional one developed by Hotez that was uh, pushed through Serum Institute in India, and I was involved at the time uh, in supporting 
a company, an Indian company called Reliance Vaccines. 